This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to season one of The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, wow, today you're in store for a treat. We have Christina Severin, President and CEO of Community Care Cooperative. You know, Eric, Christina is such an amazing leader. She's been in CEO roles in the Boston area healthcare organizations for over 20 years at Codman Square Health Centers in Dorchester, at the Medicaid Managed Care Organization, Network Health, and at Beth Israel Deaconess Hospital and more. Most recently, she formed C3, which is the Community Care Cooperative, and what an amazing story and incredible work that they're doing there. So if anyone out there wants to hear about how to win this race to value with the largest FQHC-based ACO in the country organized to take two-sided risk and hear about advancing health equity and social justice and improving the lives of patients, then you need to hear Christina Severin of Community Care Cooperative C3. Christina Severin, welcome to Race to Value. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Well, Christina, I wanted to start our conversation today just to understand a little bit about the founding of C3, the Community Care Cooperative. And as I understand, there was this Medicaid 1115 waiver that transformed MassHealth, the state's Medicaid program from an MCO to an ACO. And you were mulling over the creation of a community health center-based nonprofit to really join the cohort of ACOs being planned that served, I believe, upwards of 2 million residents in the state of Massachusetts. Can you tell us a little bit about your thoughts as you were forming the organization? And then, as I understand, there was also a serendipitous encounter at a grocery store that kind of played into the founding of C3. would love to hear more about that. Yeah, I'd be really pleased to give you uh, the information. I love telling people about the history of the organization, and and you have got your facts straight. So back in 2016, myself and many, many others in the Medicaid community on the health plan side and on the provider side were watching with much attention and excitement about what Massachusetts Medicaid, which is locally branded as MassHealth, what MassHealth was looking at doing. So I would bump into a federally qualified health center FQHC colleagues. For example, Manny Lopes, who is the president and CEO of the East Boston Neighborhood Health Center, which is a very large community health center, I think among the largest in the country. We would bump into each other occasionally. Also, as you mentioned, a woman, Lori Berry, who was at the time the president and CEO of the Lynn Community Health Center, we don't live that far away from each other, and we would bump into each other at Whole Foods. And one day in particular, I I bumped into Lori Berry at the fish counter. I think she was buying salmon. And I was like, hey, Lori, you know, I've been watching this MCO-ACO 
1115 waiver thing, I think it's pretty interesting. I'm thinking it might be worthwhile to get together and talk about what health centers could band together and start their own ACO. And I think she said something like, I don't know that much about ACOs, but I'd sure be happy to get together and talk about FQs, working with FQs. And as we shared the idea with some other FQHC colleagues, we started to get together and have informal conversation about what is the state doing? Might there be an opportunity for us? It really just started to gel. We really all got on the same page about what we wanted and how we thought we would go about creating this new organization. One thing led to another and things started to look really positive in program design and in the likelihood that CMS would approve their 1115 waiver renewal creating these ACOs. And so the next thing that happened was that they were getting ready to put out an opportunity for interested entities to run an ACO pilot in 2017, which would be a year before the commencement of the five-year 1115 waiver program. And we knew that we wanted to bid on it, and we were one of six that were approved. We then marched forward and bid on the full five-year contract. When we bid on the pilot, we had nine federally qualified health centers as part of our pilot. By the time we bid on the full ACO and had it accepted, we stood up the full five-year operation, and we had 15 FQATs in the program. Today, we're in the middle of performance year three in 2020. We have 18 FQHCs in our company, and we are the largest of the 17 mass health ACOs in the state. So, Christina, I would really like to ask you about the role that federally qualified health centers play in value-based care. There are about 1,300 FQHCs in our entire country, and they provide care to more than 28 million Americans living in underserved areas of the country, the vast majority of whom are living with significant health concerns and are extremely vulnerable to economic fluctuations. And interestingly, the research shows that despite the inherent challenges of serving as a safety net, FQHCs do perform better in caring for the Medicaid population. For example, there was a study in the American Journal of Public Health a few years ago, and it compare two cohorts in terms of healthcare use and spending of Medicaid enrollees, basically between federally qualified health centers versus non-health center settings. And they found that FQs had about 33% lower spending on specialty care, 25% fewer admissions, and 24% lower spending on total cost of care. And then on the quality front, there was another study, and I believe it was in 2012, from the American Journal of Preventive Medicine, which talked about how FQs demonstrated equal or better performance than private practice PCPs on select quality measures, despite serving patients who had more chronic disease and socioeconomic complexity. So I want to understand what is unique about federally qualified health centers that make them perform better in the care of vulnerable populations, despite being undercapitalized. And also, given the immense financial challenges that many FQHCs face, what does our country need to do in order to make the FQHC model of care more sustainable so it can be a continued source of innovation in serving society's most vulnerable and underserved populations? So I've had several jobs in healthcare, and one of them was running a managed care organization here in Massachusetts. I was the president of that health plan for many years. So we, of course, because we ran a health plan, we looked at medical loss ratios. So we would look at MLRs of all of our provider groups. And one thing was crystal clear. The lowest medical loss ratios in our network were consistently federally qualified health centers. Whenever we look at the data and the article that you cite from the American Journal of Public Health, I believe that was published in November of 2016, was right when we had stood up the company. And so you can imagine our excitement when that article came out confirming everything that we knew about the cost effectiveness of FQs. The U.S. healthcare system is full of incredible paradox. One example of the paradox is what we're talking about. 
generally speaking, those healthcare entities that are far beyond average in creating economic efficiency, right? Delivering a bundle of goods and services in the healthcare environment that is less expensive than others are also the entities who are the lowest compensated. So it's a paradox because generally in the industry, if you look outside of healthcare and you look at other goods and services, right? Generally, people drive down price and people are rewarded economically for having a low price. It's the opposite in the U.S. healthcare system. Those organizations that are the largest and the least efficient are those that are most well compensated. Why is that? Though it's very complicated and, and perhaps a different health policy conversation. For FQs, I think that there are some unique characteristics about them. One is that the providers who go work there, these dentists, behavioral health providers, uh, nurses, and others are not primarily seeking employment at the FQHC because of their interest in compensation. I think that that drives a certain culture of the people who come to work at the health center and what their interests are and the model of care they are interested in engaging in. That model of care and everything at that health center is designed to further the mission of the health center, which is to take care of everybody and improve the health and well-being of those served regardless of the patient's ability to pay. That's the mission and the vision. That's why people go to work there. And there's something about that mix and the, the deprivation of the economics. Necessity is the mother of invention. So necessity around lack of a robust funding stream is the invention of an organization that can repeatedly deliver very high quality care at far lower than the average market price of doing that work. And that really is the magic of federally qualified health centers. So in the move to value-based care, it can be difficult for healthcare entities like FQs to get involved in value-based care uh, particularly the type of value-based care that the health centers who are part of C3 uh, participate with, which is we take total cost of care risk in a quote-unquote two-sided manner. So if we beat our budget, we earn back some shared savings. And if we blow our budget, we have to write a check to MassHealth and pay back our share of that deficit. If you're a health center and you are undercapitalized, you are not going to be able to take on that kind of a value-based arrangement. Now, in the short term, that may feel comfortable for some FQs because if you're undercapitalized, you don't want to take on that risk, and that's completely understandable. The problem will be is that if the rest of the healthcare ecosystem starts to move, and they are moving, and they start to take on this risk, I worry that FQs will be left behind, and that state government and MCOs and other purchasers will become increasingly interested in doing business with entities that want to take on two-sided risk, and that health centers will be left behind. That's why I think it's really important for FQHCs to figure out through their own balance sheet or through partnering together or to creating an organization like C3 where we can socialize some of the risk and make it possible for everybody and provide enough of a financial safety net for FQ participants that everybody can feel both excited about participating but also financially safe with participating. And I think that we need to look at how state and federal health policy can be supportive of those goals and objectives, including providing innovative ways for health centers to be able to access needed capital to be able to take on two-sided risk. Christina, thank you for sharing your perspective and, and really meaningful insights on the role that FQHCs play in value-based care and the importance that they need to be getting involved sooner than later. 
As the largest FQHC-based ACO in the country, and as you mentioned, organized to take on two-sided risk, C3 is really making a name for itself as a leading innovator in healthcare, even though you just started in 2018. In your first year, full year of operations, the organization beat its 533.6 million total cost of care budget projection and saved Massachusetts a little over $12.2 million. Additionally, C3 earned an $8.1 million shared savings payment and a $1.3 million reward due to a 100% quality score from MassHealth. The risk environment for C3 is really quite aggressive as your ACO has significant financial exposure on the downside. Can you speak to how your Medicaid ACO was able to succeed in its first year of operations? And are there any lessons learned that you can share with our listeners? One thing that we did is we got a really, really big head start. In 2018, you were correct, that's when the five-year contract started. Performance year one actually commenced on March 1st of 2018. So it was a little bit of a, a truncated performance year one. We were getting ready for that go live date roughly a year in advance. We were building out things like a statewide transition of care program to make sure that we had a way to meet patients bedside in behavioral health facilities and in physical health facilities and establish a relationship and have the patient understand what our role was with the care team at the health center and continue that relationship with the patient when they went home and then try to be effective stewards of assisting the patient in the home and ultimately getting them reconnected with their primary care team at the FQHC. We also created a complex care management program, which is a program that wraps a whole bunch of extra services around individuals who are predicted to be at risk for adverse health events where an intervention would make a difference. We implemented a population health system to enable these programs to work. There were a lot of other things in addition to setting up the enterprise data warehouse, the population health system and the care management systems. We also did a lot around getting ready to report on quality and study baseline quality rates and develop plans to improve those. One of the other really important things that we did was community building. So it's bringing all of the CMOs together in a quality committee, bringing all of the CEOs together in an executive committee. We then also have a full board, of course, as a 501c3, we're governed by our members. The full board is composed of all of our health center CEOs, health center CMOs, and we have a mass health consumer who gets their care at one of our community health centers on our board. And sometimes when I tell that to people, they say, oh, gee, that sounds complicated, managing all of those interests. That sounds complicated managing a board of that size. And what I say is, it's not complicated, it's hard work, but it's it's beautiful and it's inspirational. And when these professionals get together, they are incredibly aligned around the mission, the vision, the strategy, and the purpose of C3. Then they really understand what their fiduciary duty is as board members and are really proud of what the organization has set out to do and are fiercely committed to delivering results. So part of why we have been successful in 2018 and why things continue to look good is that this is an organization that the FQs control. This is their company. They started it. And so they feel incredible ownership. And I think because of that ownership, they're really engaged and supportive of what we're trying to accomplish. It's a very sticky organization. Christina, I think a defining characteristic of an FQHC is resiliency. And despite the varying degrees of sophistication across the national landscape, it seems that FQs are really uniquely defined by their resilience, dedication to their mission, and ingenuity. And there's been no bigger test 
of FQHCs and their dedication to serving the needs of the underserved than COVID-19. This is a time where innovation is crucial to ensure that FQHCs can improve access to care, especially as the economic downturn has pushed more people out of work and off insurance. And I have to say, I'm really impressed with the ingenuity and resilience of C3 over these last few months and ensuring patient access during the pandemic. In late May, C3 launched a $5 million campaign, as I understand, to scale up telehealth capacity, training, and infrastructure. And a major focus of this initiative was to bridge that digital divide by providing patients with laptops and broadband access to support their telehealth visits. And in raising funds to support this telehealth initiative throughout the state, C3 helped organize the Massachusetts FQHC Telehealth Consortium made up of 30 community health centers, including the 18 health centers that comprise C3. This is really exciting and innovative work during a national crisis. So how has C3 been navigating this new normal of COVID-19 financially and operationally, specifically regarding this transition to virtual care? And can you update our listeners on how the implementation of this major telehealth initiative has been going over the last few months? Have your population health teams been able to critically meet the needs of patients during this unique time? When the COVID-19 pandemic hit Massachusetts, it happened fast and similar to New York, there was a lot of illness. And my husband is a family doctor at a federally qualified health center, not a member of C3. And so this got close to home, you know, really, really quickly. It was scary when the prevalence was so high and he was coming home at night and immediately walking upstairs and getting into the shower and laundering his clothes every night and quarantining himself in the guest room just because there was so much uncertainty and there was so much illness. So that story is not unique. That's what was happening in Massachusetts. I'd like to give a shout out to Governor Baker and Secretary Sutters, who have just done an extraordinary job in leading and managing through this unprecedented public health crisis. When COVID-19 hit, myself, my colleagues at C3 essentially said, we need to pivot. Like we need to, for now, put our day jobs on hold and support the health centers. And we had two primary goals and objectives in supporting the health centers. One was ensuring that patients got needed care. And two was ensuring that no health center experienced a dire financial outcome from the COVID crisis. As you mentioned, one of the first things that we did was start ordering hardware. For example, laptops for PCPs to be able to work from home. You may remember at that time, because of how the pandemic had impacted China, it was not easy to get laptops. Fortunately, we were able to partner with a very savvy IT professional who was able to procure us needed hardware. He also was able to distribute that hardware and get it into the hands of the PCPs. So we're working on this and we're working on this. And then we got a call from a trustee at the Patrick J. McGovern Foundation. And she said, hey, I'm calling because we're looking to put some money to work. And we'd like to know what you guys are doing to help health centers, help support them during COVID. And so we told her what we were up to. And she said, great, thanks so much for the information. I'll get back to you. She called us back a couple of days later and let us know that she wanted to make a significant financial investment to support our telehealth efforts and that she was going to reach out to the funding community to ask for a match. And so before long, we did get the match. We also applied for the FCC grant that was available to support patient-side hardware like remote patient monitoring equipment, and that we got that grant. That was about a million dollars. At that point, as you mentioned, we decided for round one of funding that we would establish a $5 million goal. Honestly, the $5 million wasn't rocket science. It felt like intuitively the right initial target 
that would have a material impact on supporting the health centers in the consortium and also based on what we had raised through the initial funding and the FCC, a target that would be stretch but achievable. We are concurrently now working on building out phase two and defining what we think we need financially to support the work contained within phase two. The consortium is an intensive collaboration between the Primary Care Association in Massachusetts, which is called the Mass League of Community Health Centers, and C3, and we do this in partnership. When it started out, initially it was the C3 health centers, and then we started the consortium, and with the support of the Mass League, today we're up to 35 of the 37 FQs in the state participating in the consortium. We've done a lot of work, as mentioned, on the provider side, on video enablement, on procuring hardware, on the patient side, on procuring hardware, getting patients up on smartphones, making sure that they have the minutes that they need and the broadband access that they need. We have also been working to do remote patient monitoring, O2 SAT, remote scales, remote blood pressure monitoring. I don't want to make this all sound like rainbows and butterflies. It is not. It is hard work. I would say particularly on remote patient monitoring, it's still a little bit of the Wild West out there in terms of what is really available that has more or less reasonably efficient means to electronically connect with EHR product. It's an underdeveloped market still. It's not surprising. It's a new market. I think we're going to see very rapid development in this space. So we've been working on all of that. The other thing that we have all witnessed during the COVID pandemic, starting with the murder of George Floyd, is the uprising in this country and the calling for racial justice and Black Lives Matter. So for us, those two, the movement to racial justice and the COVID pandemic have really become quite confounding, especially when you look at the rates of prevalence and morbidity and mortality from COVID that are experienced by Uh, communities that are disproportionately people of color, people who are black, and people who are are brown. And so what we want to do now in phase two is bridge the digital divide. What we really mean there is not only having equality on who can access the telehealth modalities, telephone, video, for example, so that when we do patient satisfaction surveys, we would no longer see a difference between level of satisfaction with video visits between people who are brown or black and people who are white. Um, We would see an equality of that because we would have enabled everyone to have equitable access to everything that is needed to effectively use those modalities. More importantly, when we look at the healthcare system prior to the pandemic, It was not equitable. We know this. We know when we look at immunization rates locally and nationally for people who are black, that they are materially lower than for people who are white. We know that it has been harder for low-income people to access healthcare. There are more impediments. There are issues that uh, those people face around being wage earners. And unlike me, if I take time off, I actually went to the dentist this morning. I didn't experience lost wages from going to the dentist. But if you're a wage earner, taking time off to see the doctor means lost wages. It also might mean figuring out transportation, either gassing up your own car, borrowing a car, taking public transport. It might mean figuring out how to get childcare for your kids while you go to the doctor. So these are all impediments that low-income consumers disproportionately face prior to the pandemic. So when we say bridging the digital divide, what we want to do is rebuild the system 
so that we can concretize the use of these alternative telehealth modalities as a way to be able to offer all of the consumers at the health center the choices that best matched their preferences on how they want to access healthcare and what their clinical need is. That's really the focus of what will be coming in phase two of fundraising for the FQHC Telehealth Consortium. Christina, it's really profound listening to your explanation of that. And one of the things that we think about in addition to those challenges as we're seeing the effects of COVID-19 on our society, we can't help but think about mental health as well. And fortunately, Massachusetts is in a better position than most states to deal with a huge number of people already in treatment for mental health issues. As I understand it, the state has a long history of forward-thinking policies dating back to landmark legislation passed in the 1960s that greatly expanded outpatient and community-based mental health facilities and services. And so the state has currently about 50 behavioral health care providers per 10,000 residents, which is the highest ratio in the U.S. And although the Bay State is fairly well positioned to address mental health issues, there may be a looming crisis underway. As of July, the unemployment rate in Massachusetts was 16.1%, the highest in the country. In January, Massachusetts had 517 reported telehealth visits for behavioral health services. And now as of reporting through July, there have been 22,000 telehealth visits for the same reason. The unemployment issue coupled with the need to socially isolate for the sake of public health clearly has a negative impact on the mental health of the population. Can you explain how C3 has been able to better integrate behavioral and mental health into primary care for more holistic patient-centered care so that you can really address the needs of your population during these difficult times? Yes, and again, the props go to the federally qualified health centers who even the systems of financing for the health centers, this is true for the health centers in Massachusetts and and nationally is always precarious. It never stops the health centers from being on the vanguard of developing and implementing the most effective models of care for the population served. An example of this would be what the health centers have done around behavioral health integration or BHI. I'll walk you through an example. If I walk into clinic to my FQ and I have a visit with my family doctor and during the course of my visit with my family doctor, it becomes clear that I'm having an acute mental health need. And these health centers have a way of saying, hold that thought. I'm going to have somebody uh, come in if it's okay with you to join us to talk about that. The PCP will get the behavioral health clinician. So that is a licensed professional in behavioral health whose job it is, is to be available for that session and for all sessions as the warm handoff clinician. So into the exam room will walk that licensed behavioral health professional, and that individual will speak and have a visit with that BH professional and will make a short-term plan of care to be able to manage whatever is going on. So that has been something that has been incredibly effective in building a model of care that is not over-medicalized, if you will, but understands the importance of behavioral health and often that the best entree for a consumer into accessing behavioral health services can actually be in the moment of disclosure of what is going on with the PCP, right? So the patient doesn't have to leave with a referral and figure out how to call and how to book the appointment and all of those things for all of us who have tried to access behavioral health services, and I certainly have, can take a long time and can be quite cumbersome, and you need to be quite persistent to get the needed care. These models make it much easier for people who are interested in this. If you look at the use of behavioral health services, when the pandemic started surging in Massachusetts, you would feel pretty good and inspired by what you saw. So the pandemic happened, right, and visits plummeted. Then the health centers worked really hard to bring up telehealth 
and behavioral health were real leaders. Now, of course, there's some things that are less complicated about behavioral health. You don't need to do any interventions of piercing the skin. You don't need a lot of other care extenders, medical assistant RNs. It can be more of a one-on-one experience with the patient and the clinician. And so that happened very, very quickly. And several of our health centers were able to reestablish service levels that were happening, a number of behavioral health visits that were happening prior to COVID and now during COVID were at the same level. Some health centers were actually expanding what they were able to do and bringing on additional capacity. We also were able for some health centers that had a little bit of surplus on supply, we were able to match them with health centers that had not enough supply so that we had health centers supporting health centers with offering additional access to behavioral health services. I think you're really, really right that this pandemic is having a profound impact on people's mental health. I think that could be all the way from an exacerbation of an existing condition to a person experiencing depression and loneliness from the isolation that we're experiencing to people experiencing a lot of trauma from getting sick, from watching a loved one get sick, sometimes intense guilt if they feel like they got a loved one sick. There have obviously been a lot of fatalities, which is just awful. People have lost a lot of loved ones. And there's a lot of essential workers who are working in really scary and really difficult conditions. And, you know, part of the reason why low-income people and and people who are black and people who are, are brown have higher prevalence of the illness is because of the percent of those populations that are essential workers, in addition to other risk factors like living in crowded housing and having other uh, medical concerns that might make them higher risk to have more disease severity. So I think the health centers are, are getting ready for that. I think other members of the care community are getting ready for that. You're right that we are really, really fortunate that there has been long-standing policy in Massachusetts to support an environment where there is more access to behavioral health than probably most of the country. It doesn't mean it, it's perfect, but you know, it, it's pretty good. Hopefully, we'll be able to manage the health centers and the other behavioral health providers and you know, we're also very fortunate that we still have, in addition to the community-based work that the FQs do, there are a lot of other community-based mental health organizations, which is a real gift to the community, and they have great partnerships with the FQs. So knock on wood, hopefully, as the demand starts to build for these services, that we will, the health centers and the other providers of these services will be able to manage the demand and support people. Thanks, Christina. I wanted to revisit something you said earlier. You you said at this moment in time, we have two historical events clashing together at one. You have the catastrophic public health crisis and the resultant economic fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic. And then we have this plight of racial injustice in our society. And it seems to me that both of these events have really put a spotlight on the health inequities within communities of color. I mean, there hasn't been any period in American history where the health of blacks was equal to that of whites. It's almost like disparity is built into the healthcare system. And we see that in population health research. African-American patients tend to have lower quality healthcare. And you look at that in treatments for cancer, HIV, prenatal care, diabetes, preventative care. They're less likely to receive treatment for cardiovascular disease. African-American men have the worst healthcare outcomes of any segment in the population. And then health disparities are also affecting African-American women. They have a threefold risk of dying during pregnancy. And then in this current pandemic, communities of color are also being hit disproportionately by COVID-19. And African-Americans, I believe, die at three times the rate of other segments of the population. So needless to say, it does seem that there's institutional racism that is in place that really 
allows for the treatment of black and brown patients differently from white patients. And this really has to be changed if we're truly to transform our healthcare system and improve outcomes for all. Can you speak to how C3 is working to advance health equity and how is your organization examining the health-related social needs of your patient population and then working to address those issues in an individualized, culturally relevant way? Yeah. So the first thing that I would uh, like to say is that since the listeners are listening to me and not looking at me, is that I'm a white person. And as a white person, where I started on this is being able to say, the first thing that I'm going to do is look inside and read a lot. And that's what I've been doing. And some of my takeaways is that I have needed to be able to stand up in front of my colleagues and say, something that I've learned through this reckoning, our country's reckoning with institutionalized racism and white supremacy is that I've been complacent. I've been complacent in not recognizing the extent to which my white privilege has advantaged me and my white colleagues to the extent that white supremacy has been the key driver in driving adversity for people who are not white, particularly for people who are black, and to admit that, that I'm a racist, right? Because I've grown up in this white supremacist society. And admitting you have a problem is the beginning of becoming more, I, I don't want to say anything too lofty like enlightened, right? It's not. Admitting you have a problem is the beginning of a willingness of opening the mind to understand how I, as an individual, got to where I am with myself in this white supremacist society. Part of that is understanding that it's not going to be white people who get us out of this, right? It's a lot of this is white people getting out of the way. So I want to talk about this in the context of me not being a, a leader of this. There is an individual at C3, our chief people officer, whose name is Sharon Hansen, who is the leader at C3 for these efforts. And I support Sharon by giving Sharon the budget she needs to lead these efforts. And Sharon has a diversity, equity, and racial justice committee but the committee does not run things by me for approval. Sharon is the person who is in charge of making decisions on how we can do better at an organization on uh, diversity, equity, and racial justice. Health centers are organizations that certainly have been on the vanguard of this movement. That doesn't mean that health centers don't have work to do, right? We all have work to do. So I think it's taking some of that work and, and furthering it, and it is having white people be incredibly humble and learning how to not talk and rather listen and learn how to have our organizations be more reflective of the population served, not only at the front desk and in medical records, but all the way up to the PCPs and ultimately to the C-suite. And I know that those are the commitments that our FQHCs are taking, and I, I believe that those are also the commitments that our Committee on Diversity, Equity, and Racial Justice is looking to undertake at C3 as well. Now, further to the point that you made, if you look at the state of Massachusetts, more specifically, if you look at the city of Boston, Right. There are communities such as the community of Roxbury that is low income and people who live there are primarily black and brown. And then there's another community in Boston, which is called the Back Bay, which is the, the fancy area and it's high income and it is disproportionately populated by people who are white. The life expectancy difference in these two communities is 30 years. And you hear that and it's hard to believe, but those are the facts. And there are so many reasons why that's the case. You know, ultimately, it's what you led with. It's racial injustice. 
It's race institutionalized racism. It's all of these sort of microaggressions and the microabrasions over time that over a decade and then another decade and another decade lead to disproportionate morbidity, chronic disease, poor environmental factors that ultimately lead to the premature death that I mentioned. I'm really pleased that you framed your question around health-related social needs because it is so profoundly different than social determinants of health. When we talk about health-related social needs, we talk about those things that are going on socially with an individual that is having a direct impact on their health status. An example could be somebody with complicated diabetes who really, really has no adequate access to a healthy food supply. Another example would be somebody who is in a hospital bed and the hospital is ready to discharge them and they have no home to go home to. These are very acute health-related social needs. I want to distinguish that from social determinants of health. For us, when we think about social determinants of health, we think about the color of your skin. Right? The color of your skin is the leading indicator that will determine what your wellness will be and what your life expectancy will be and what your likelihood of having multiple chronic diseases will be. Those are not things that can be fixed by writing a check for rent or getting somebody access to medically tailored meals or a safe and reliable food supply. Part of the MassHealth ACO program has a really dynamic, innovative, and fantastic program called the Flexible Spending Program. The Flexible Spending Program is available to accountable care organizations. The Flexible Service Program provides real, effectively cash, it's not cash, but is it effectively cash assistance to individuals who have complex needs, physical health and or behavioral health, and are experiencing impediments in food nutrition and or housing that are negatively impacting their chronic diseases. In those situations, this MassHealth Flexible Spending Program allows us to partner with social service organizations who can get these individuals what they need. It might be writing a check for first month's rent. It might be supporting them with essentially gift cards for grocery shopping. It might be a medically tailored meal on a regular ongoing basis. I don't know of any other program in a Medicaid program in the country that is as forward thinking or innovative. And I will tell you that in the short few months that we have launched the program, we have helped thousands and thousands of members and incurred allowable expenses of over $3 million. We helped a gentleman get groceries, and the social service organization brought the groceries to him. And when they got there, they realized that this gentleman didn't have any pots and pans to cook the groceries in. So they, they went out and they got him pots and pans. And he was incredibly grateful. He understandably uh, had been somewhat embarrassed by this. Because who wants to tell somebody that they haven't had any way to cook a meal in seven years? It had been seven years for this gentleman. So we got him pots and pans, and he was really, he was grateful, but he was really sort of excited and empowered to be able to cook for himself again, you know, coupled with having the ability of a financial resource to be able to get him these groceries. So this program is having an incredible impact on the individual served. And again, just want to express gratitude to Secretary Sutters and to, to Governor Baker for the innovative nature of this ACO program. Wow, Christina, thank you for your commentary on this important issue. I want to stay on the topic a little longer and tie it into value-based payment 
The industry movement to value-based care emerged more than two decades ago with the objective to improve quality while lowering or containing costs. However, its impact on racial health disparities has been limited. Last month in Health Affairs, there was an article entitled Value-Based Healthcare Must Value Black Lives. And it proposed a framework to incorporate racial justice into value-based care, which included the re-engineering of pay-for-performance models to include health equity as a key financial measure for success. For example, a Medicaid pay-for-performance model grounded in equity could require all ACOs to conduct disparities impact assessments and health equity reports to monitor whether institutional level policies proactively reduce health disparities. Another example would be to have some sort of socio-demographic-based risk adjustment that takes into account race and poverty. What are your thoughts about how can we as a country build the economic will to reorient value-based care policies around racial and health justice? Is this the type of approach that we should consider? Wow, that's a, that's a spectacular question. It's a hard question. I would say that as a white person and as a, a white person who is a CEO and is responsible for leading an organization, we have 145,000 mass health beneficiaries in our ACO. And as we know, people who are low income are disproportionately represented by people who are black and people who are brown. That I feel like it's my social duty if government wants to hold me accountable for anything around racial justice and health equity, that I need to be a yes. So to specifically answer your question, if the Executive Office of Health and Human Services in Massachusetts were to say to me something that, to the effect that you just did around new accountabilities, I would be willing to take that on, period. Furthermore, I also think that there is an element that is a little bit of a red herring in holding ACOs responsible for big societal issues like institutionalized racism and white supremacy. So although I'd be willing to, to take on and take accountability for whatever I can, and I would, do, I would do whatever I could to try to deliver results, I think we also need to recognize that this is a much bigger thing. Let me give you an example. What are we spending in this country on, on GDP? It's something like probably roughly 18% of the U.S. healthcare GDP goes to healthcare. Like that in and of itself drives health inequity because we spend so much of GDP on healthcare that it takes money out of things that are critically important to communities of color, like public education, like the quality of public schools would be one example. There are many more examples. And so although I think holding healthcare organizations responsible is fine, I think that you could argue from a longitudinal social policy perspective that those large constituents, big managed care plans, big integrated systems, can actually do more to advance racial justice by finding truly meaningful ways to shrink their footprint and their capital costs and how much investment those systems will need to continue to sort of generate income and growth in those organizations, right? Because that, that's key to why we spend so much of GDP on healthcare costs. So if we could sort of freeze that and start to contract that back, I think that we would start to free up the revenue that we need as a society to redistribute it to a policy that is truly focused on promoting health equity and social justice. Christine, I love hearing your passion on this topic. And as we're discussing social justice, we would really be remiss if we didn't bring up the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her lifelong fight and advocacy for equality and equity, which has left a positive lasting effect on our country and our communities. And how can we in healthcare honor her legacy by giving voice, even when in dissent, to advocate for a more just and equitable world? Yeah, 
She was a a truly remarkable woman. My mother-in-law, my husband's mother, actually had a pen pal relationship with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The genesis of that was that her husband, who has been deceased for about 15 years, so my husband's father, went to Cornell with, with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Judge Ginsburg. And at that time, her boyfriend, Marty, became her husband, was a law student at Harvard. And my husband's father, whose name is Philip, would drive uh, Justice Ginsburg on the weekends, on some weekends, to see her boyfriend, Marty. And this led to a relationship, which was a pen pal relationship between Judge Ginsburg and my mother-in-law, whose name is Lois Severin. And the last letter that Lois got from Ruth Bader Ginsburg was actually just a couple of weeks before her death. And people talk about how much she worked and she had time to have this pen pal relationship with my mother-in-law. I mean, I love my mother-in-law. She's a truly remarkable person. But can you imagine how many other pen pal relationships she had? And these were letters written by the justice. So, sorry, I got a little bit off topic there, but hopefully the listeners enjoy that story as much as I do. So, so many ways to answer that question. Let me focus on, I'm a woman, uh, let me focus on women's reproductive rights. And hopefully the passing of Justice Ginsburg has not in any way put this country in a position where women will lose the rights that they have to control their own bodies. Thank you, Christina. And I I wanted to explore another angle on this topic of social justice and bring up community impact investments. So compared to safety net community health centers, many of the nation's top medical centers run on high profit margins despite their nonprofit status. They're able to negotiate higher reimbursements from private payers, maintain a payer mix that's really skewed towards Medicare and private pay, and can currently benefit from tax exemptions granted by their nonprofit status. Their tax exemption eligibility is contingent, of course, on their commitment to benefiting the community through subsidized services and direct investment in helping under-resourced communities. And they spend more than $60 billion a year in community benefit spending. However, the extent to which this meaningfully benefits poor communities of color is unclear. And on top of that, you have these health plans right now that are sitting on record profits right now due to sharp declines in elective care during the pandemic that have reduced healthcare expenditures and contributed to their earnings. In your opinion, should there be community reinvestment by organizations that are really sitting on good balance sheets right now? In the scenario of these health plans with unspent premiums generating these windfalls, should there be a formal mechanism to put this money back into communities amid a national crisis? So I think that you bring up a really important topic. I consider myself to have good expertise on certain aspects of health policy, and I certainly can opine on a number of other items. On this one, I'm not sure that I would consider myself enough of a health policy expert to really give you a a wonky answer. However, I'm not going to not answer your question because I think that what you have raised in your question is of existentially importance. It's kind of what we were talking about a moment ago about sort of self-examination you know, for white people, self-examination, if you really want to be part of making this country a better country for people who are black and people who are brown, how are you authentically going to do that, right? And is a community benefit something that authentically makes a difference? So I think that as you point out, I think that the sort of the balance sheets of some of the big players in the health plan industry and the big players in the health system industry have contributed to deteriorating conditions for lower income people through their profit margins. What I would like to see to opine on something sort of a little bit out of my field of expertise is I'd really like to see the system pivot over time to be one that is less accommodating of this type of accumulation of size and wealth 
and starts to put more of the locus of control of care and decision making and therefore sort of where the money goes if you follow the dollar into community-based organizations like community-based mental health and social service organizations and federally qualified health centers. One way to get started on this would be to do what we call sort of getting off of the fee-for-service chassis and getting interested primary care providers that at C3 were quite interested in prospective primary care capitation, which would be a way to give health centers sort of a stable way to have monthly financing prospectively, which would give them a lot more nimbleness on building out more services, being able to do more under their roof, to have less dependency on exterior relationships, less dependency on relationships with other care providers. Furthermore, hopefully it never happens, but should we get a second bad wave of COVID or should we get another pandemic, a prospective capitation would also provide financial stability because the payment would be prospective and therefore, you know, even if patients were unable to come in for care because they needed to stay home to be safe for a limited period of time, the health centers would receive that payment and so would not experience a financial crisis. Christina, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. And and as we wrap up our conversation, you've shared your thoughts on adopting primary care capitation to improve health and wellness of Americans. And what would you tell those healthcare executive listeners out there that are scared to take financial risk, especially those managing medical practices? What do they need to be thinking about in this era of value-based care post-COVID-19? So for practices out there, and particularly for any FQHC listeners or you know, stakeholders or friends of the FQHC community, I would say that I understand that getting started and taking risk can be a very anxiety-producing concept. What I would say is weigh the risk of taking two-sided risk and think about how risky that really is in comparison to taking the risk of not moving forward and what will happen to your organization if the market all moves forward and you don't. One thing that we've seen is as government has become more interested in moving to value-based care, they are willing to make it more interesting to new entrants who are willing to play ball. So I think that policymakers and government and soon private payers are going to say, we want to go to a value-based environment, and we hope that our existing partners in the provider community want to go there. But if not, we're going there. And if that means that we need to roll out the red carpet to new entrants, we are willing to do that to make it happen. So for us, there was a lot more risk in standing still than there was in taking the plunge into the deep end. <laughs> when you take the plunge in the deep end, be sure that you do it wisely. Be sure, be sure, be sure that you have a capital plan that will be sufficient to meet the requirements of your contract. That may be the same as saying, you need to have enough money in the bank to cover your maximum loss on that contract. And that could be the same as saying, you need to meet your contractual responsibilities. Sometimes they're different. We took a conservative approach at taking risk. So although we dove off the board into the deep end, we did it with a very sound capital plan, knowing that if we experienced a worst case financial scenario, we would live through it and make good on all of our debts. Christina Severin, President and CEO, Community Care Cooperative, C3. Thank you so much for joining us today in this conversation and sharing with our listeners your journey in this race to value. You're so welcome. I've really enjoyed being with you today. Thank you. You guys, guys asked, I, I get interviewed on a regular uh, basis now, 
And I'm not just saying this to be a nice person. I'm from the Northeast, right? We don't do things just to be nice. <laughs> uh, you asked me the smartest, most sophisticated questions I think I have ever been asked in an interview. So you did your homework and it's really impressive. <laughs>